Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast for the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm your host, Daniel Link, and with me again, listeners of last episode will remember Cameron Suey. How are you doing tonight, Cameron? Hey, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Excellent. I understand that you have a new member of your household who's a bit skeletonized. Oh, God. you know what? After, um, after Halloween, we have about seven new additions, uh, mostly of the skeletal variety. We went uh, a little crazy on the November 1st 50% off Halloween decoration sale. Uh, and the cool thing is uh, showing up at that Target at 9 in the morning, uh, it's full of people like me, which was wonderful. It just You like trade glances of another kindred spirit. You nod. Abso- like, absolutely. Yeah. Like he's been posting pictures of his front yard throughout October and you're like the only person who incrementally adds more decorations throughout the month of October that I know of. Well, this is my first month. This is the first time we've ever really had a front yard to decorate. True, so, true. Uh, I had to build up to it slowly. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to have to hold off doing that next year, but lighting is the next step. Oh, so you're just going to be the Clark Griswold of Halloween. I respect that. Absolutely. All right. Uh, on a much less festive, much more dour note, uh, this episode, we are tackling Trey Edward Schultz's second film, his first foray into horror. It Comes at Night, which came out earlier this year. There's not many well-known actors in this. I think the closest they come is Joel Edgerton. He's one of the lead actors in the UFC movie Warrior. He was uh, Ramsey's in that uh, Exodus Gods and Kings adaptation by Ridley Scott. (laughs) Uh, He was also in uh, The Thing, the 2011, um, uh, not remake, but uh, prequel. Yes, that's right. Uh, And he was in Black Mass, which is like the true story of The Departed. So It Comes at Night. It's one of uh, the spate of recent really good horror movies that were released through distributor A24. They also handled The Witch. They also handled The Black Coat's Daughter, which we tackled last week. Uh, last episode. This was had an interest in reaction upon its release because there were like some people, uh, some reviewers who felt that the marketing for this movie had been very misleading, that the trailer was framing stuff in ways to like make it think like there was some kind of titular it or a monster in this movie when it was really yeah. not. Uh, uh, it, uh, it, it, it's a little interesting because um, I understood that they, they had a, a sharp fall off in box office after that first yeah. weekend, mostly through uh, poor word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually got to see it in the theater. Oh, you did? Um, yeah, I did. I, I was supposed to go with a group of people and pretty much all of them had heard that negative word of mouth and they <laughs> ended up sort of, uh, demurring for the night. Ah. So I saw it by myself, which is, uh, kind of awesome anyway. Um, yeah. and at the end of the film, mm-hmm. um, there was a audible sense of anger from the audience. Um, just loud disappointment and and uh, complaints being voiced through the credits. Um, <laughs> I loved it. Same. Uh, but I, I could totally see how, given the trailer that people saw and the movie they expected to see uh, on a Saturday evening, mm-hmm. I understood where they were coming from. Yeah. And as I'm going to get into a second... This is a kind of difficult movie to pitch, and I understand <laughs> why uh, the trailer A24, whoever did the trailer editing, may have misled people a bit. Because if I'm to sum up It Comes at Night, like its basic premise, it's a zombie movie with no zombies in it. So- yeah, it's completely deconstructed of those the sort of traditional formal elements of apocalyptic movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and purely focused on the characters. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, is I, I had a beer with a friend of mine who had decided not to see it mm-hmm. just before. And he was telling me the reason he didn't want to see it is he wasn't really into traditional sort of apocalyptic horror films anymore. And what he really wanted to see was sort of dark psychological things that really interrogated the character's motivations. So, um, so- I texted him right after, <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> Um, and I think he would have, and I think has since seen and loves this movie, but, I'm really, uh, yeah, there was definitely some misunderstandings. Yeah. I'm glad to hear he was able to see it and enjoy it. Cause yeah, uh, anyone who's familiar with zombie fiction, so either the original George A. Romero dead movies, or if you watch the locking dead, uh, if you're familiar with that basic setup, it removes, or at least keeps very much in the background or at least implied 
the whole zombie or infection aspect of it and focuses more on the interactions between the human survivors. And we're yeah. typically in a lot of zombie and apocalyptic fiction, that is where the conflict arises. Uh, so that it just laser focuses on that, like the paranoia, the rising tensions between these people who are very much afraid of the infection. And it almost becomes not so much about the infection as they're trying to avoid as the fear of the infection. Like the fear itself is the antagonist in a way and how that makes people turn on each other. Yeah. And they're deliberately very, very vague about what the infection is, Mm -hmm. what it does. Um, You know, is it just a disease? Is it just a plague? Is there another aspect to it? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the fact that the characters know and we don't is one of the things that generates this sort of seething background anxiety during the movie. Yeah. It's a difficult movie to watch for a variety of reasons, but it is oh, yes. very uncomfortable. Yeah. I was discussing on this this movie with the on the Waypoint forums with a couple of other people a few days ago. And this fellow forum poster, Luck Willows, he said that he left the theater after seeing Incomes at Night, feeling, quote, like I'd just been punched in the gut for 90 minutes. And while saying I liked it feels like the wrong sentiment, I loved how bad it made me feel. Unquote. <laughs> so thank you, Luck Willows, for that, because that adequately summarizes my feelings as well. Uh, so just to set up the basic plot of this movie, uh, it primarily focuses on two, well, not just primarily, it entirely focuses on two families. Uh, the first is the one we're introduced to in the opening scenes. They start out as four. They quickly end up as three. Uh, so it's a father, his uh, wife, his father-in-law, and their son. The father-in-law is the first person we see in the movie, and he's one of the only instances we see of the actual infection in the movie, where he's very clearly in the late stages of it. And the movie opens with his family saying their goodbyes, and then bring him out to be the wood, bring him out to the woods to be euthanized, or more bluntly put, like partially smothered, partially shot in the head, and having his body burned and buried. It's a very blunt opening to this movie that, like, to me, it sets the stage for like, okay, this is what this movie delves in. This, oh, so many more words here. This movie is not necessarily about monsters. This movie is about raw human horror. And like that opening scene is like, oh, here is like this 17-something-year-old kid saying a tearful goodbye to his grandfather who has to be put out to pasture. Uh, and so just that opening scene just sets the tone. Uh, and the th- the now three of them, so Paul, played by Joel Edgerton, Sarah, played by Carmen Ajogo, uh, who was in Alien Covenant earlier this year, and Travis, played by a uh, newer actor, doesn't have a lot under his belt yet, Kelvin Harrison Jr. The three of them live this meager existence in this in other circumstances, very nice cottage out in the middle of the woods. Uh, they have all the windows boarded up, and they live a very restricted lifestyle. They don't go out at night for reasons that are never delved into, but one can assume are reasons of safety and protection. And they take extreme precautions in locking their place down, making sure that no contaminants get in, boiling all their water. And those first few minutes following the prologue kind of set up the life they live. Yeah, the, the space that they're living in um, is really, it, it has this sort of a mudroom that they've turned into an airlock, basically. Yes. Um, and they they focus a lot on the door, the inner door mm. um, to that room. And that door becomes like a character in its own right. There's so much sort of weight and tension just to the existence and the state of that door. Yeah, it's worth noting that there's not a lot of strong color in this movie. Like, it's not desaturated. It's just mostly a natural woodland color palette. So this door, which has been painted a deep red, is like a constant visual icon throughout this movie. Uh, one of the things that I, I thought also was really interesting about the the set that it's filmed in, and I this is one of those things that I sort of understood subconsciously when I was watching it, and then later as I was reading about it, mm-hmm. Um, I realized it was utterly intentional, is that there's very deliberately uh, no layout to the house established. Yes. Um, In fact, there's some stuff that's um, almost intentionally uh, hidden from you. Mm -hmm. Um, So it feels sort of like a maze 
Um, and I guess what I understand is he took some influences from the way that Kubrick shot the Overlook and the Shining. Yes. Um, yes. So you get this sense of wrong interior space. Um, just another one of those elements that creates this constant seething anxiety. Which worked on me because uh, the way I visualize things and process like information is I'm constantly mapping out places in my head. I really want to establish yeah. <laughs> a spatial sense. Like if I'm just like entering a new building for the first time, if I'm walking through a neighborhood and never been down the first time, I'm always like, okay, where's this street lie in relationship to other streets I've been down? To? Uh, which stairwell takes me where? The last time I felt this disorientated or disoriented, I'm not sure if that's the proper usage. When I was in my helping my sister move into her previous apartment and the map for this thing was house of leaves level asymmetrical (laughs) and nonsensical i took a long take video of it my own five and a half minute hallway just trying to break down like how the layout of this apartment and its staircases made no sense and i get a very similar feeling from this movie in fact there's a night scene of travis walking around the house with a lantern and at first you think you see him walking down the stairs But then you realize that's his reflection in a mirror on the other side of the room. And it's hard to make out the details because it's shot mostly in natural light. So it's just the darkness and him and his electric lantern. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way about mapping up interior spaces and thinking about things spatially. Mm -hmm. Um, When I used to travel for work a lot, when I went to a new city, the first thing I'd do is I'd just sort of walk in concentric circles and I'd build a map in my head. And I found when I came back to the same cities years and years later... I still totally understood the space where I was going and where things are. So that sort of technique of having a non-consistent interior yeah. geometry is incredibly effective yeah. for me. Yeah. Last note about spatial references and everything. I saw my favorite movie, Alien, when I was 11, which was way too young to be seeing that movie. Thank you <laughs> to my housekeeper, Terry. As early as like 11 and 12, I was drawing layouts of the Nostromo deck plan just based off the information I'd internalized from that movie. So that's how effectively this movie's use of layout screwed with me. And it really helps you get into the mindset of Travis. And like for a pseudo zombie movie, it's far more psychological than the usual fare. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of trite at this point to say uh, humans are the real monsters yeah. um, because that, that sort of thematic has been run down so much. Um, but I think what's incredibly unique about this movie is that none of these people are evil. Their motivations for doing what they end up doing Mm -hmm. are entirely based around sort of contracting senses of community. Um, you know, what was much a larger community becomes smaller and smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. until it's just about protecting your immediate family. Um, yes, the way I see it, like were it not for this scenario, the end, this kind of pandemic scenario, I could totally see these two families meeting at like a block party and bonding and getting together for a barbecue. But these are not those circumstances. These are much more dire ones. It's a movie almost kind of about tribalism, like that rare primal, primordial, this is my tribe, this is the other tribe. We do not trust the other tribe. They are other, they are different which is complicated by the sheer amount of psychological and communicative ambiguity in this movie, which we'll delve into. Yeah, I I think it would be very fair to say that Paul and Will, the two father figures um, in a better world, would almost certainly be good friends. Mm -hmm. They are are similar enough and they're both strong enough in what their desires are that I think that in a world that they had the luxury of uh, safety... Um, that they would get along great. Um, I think the way I describe this movie to somebody afterwards, though, is that it's like uh, what would happen if two Joels from The Last of Us had to cooperate. <laughs> like they're they're both so focused on their individual needs of their family, um, and that that's the thing that ends up putting them in conflict is is yeah. a a good intent that they have and an intensity of following that intent. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Joel because. Paul, played by Joel Edgerton, looks almost exactly as the character Joel in The Last of Us, to the point where it wasn't until halfway through the movie, I'm like, oh, his name's Paul, not Joel, because that was so deeply ingrained in my mind. Uh, But let's get into how these two meet. So sometime after they've had to uh, put poor Bud, the father-in-law slash grandfather, I say out to pasture, that sounds so cruel, but have him euthanized. They're woken up in the middle of the night. Something or someone has broken into the mudroom slash airlock in their house and Paul's able to get the drop on them 
and it's Will, played by Christopher Abbott. He had a smaller role in Martha Marcy May Marlene a few years ago as one of the cultists in Patrick's cult. Will is quickly incapacitated and detained by Paul, who, as a matter of safety, ties him up to a tree out on the property, leaves him there for the rest of the night and good part of the day to basically see if anything would take him or if anyone would come to claim him. And the next day, when he's established that there is a reasonable amount of safety, they go out there and they communicate. And Paul is basically trying to suss out why Will broke into their place. Is there anybody else coming? Like what the whole situation is, can they even establish a baseline of trust? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think one of the other sequences when they tie him up outside that uh, I felt so unmoored because you don't know the intent. Are they checking him for infection? Mm -hmm. Are they seeing if something else happens to him? Um, But it seems like there's an almost, like they know to do that. There's an almost ritualistic, well, of course we tie him up outside and we wait the approximate amount of time until Mm -hmm. X happens. But that's another one of those moments that just I could sort of spin over in my head for a while trying to pick apart for clues that I'm not sure are actually there. Yeah, like on that subject of clues and how much we do or do not know, anyone who's like taken the English lit course or if you were a nerdy English major like I was, you're probably familiar with the term dramatic irony, the idea of when the audience knows something that the characters do not. So this isn't quite dramatic irony and it's not like a total inversion of it. It's the audience only knows as much as the, t- the characters verbally communicate. And so we're left in the shoes of the other characters who don't know the information that's being withheld. So that's, it helps put you right there in the scene and feel exactly that amount of anxiety and ambiguity as those characters must feel. Yeah, the, the sort of lack of, of exposition, um, I just, it's, it's something that I think when I was a lot younger and I wanted to sort of eat up world building and fantasy and science fiction would have driven me crazy. But uh, (laughs) now I realize that sort of restraint is something really special. Well, it's like the Mad Facts Fury Road style of world building, which there's really no heavy handed exposition or monologues about how the world got to be in the state it is or why characters do the certain rituals they do. It's all implied. It's just reading the details. And it's really funny that I mentioned Mad Max Fury Road Because as soon as Paul establishes that Will isn't a threat, they go to pick up Will's uh, wife and son. His wife is played, Kim is played by Bradley Keough, who was splendid, one of the five wives in Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. Though I am getting ahead of myself. Before we get there, as the two men are driving to where Will's family is residing at a brother's place, he said, they're ambushed by two shooters, two men who are never identified, we never get to know outside of the bullets they're firing at the main characters. And both Paul and Will quickly subdue and uh, incapacitate them, though Paul makes a point of killing one who, as uh, Will points out, they could have gotten information from. And it's like this moment where the two men come together and establish a firmer trust, but you also get the sense of, wait, who were these two guys? Was there a connection there? Were they some kind of backup for Will? It's something that's never elaborated on the movie. And because of that last bullet that Paul fires, we don't know for sure either. Yeah, it's um, I, I, I'm just sort of recalling mm-hmm. like actually how much data you're getting from character reactions in that scene. The, the interplay between uh, Will and Paul uh, is just there's so much that's, that they are both sort of restraining from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's they're both so guarded. Um, and one of the real joys of the movie is watching them uh, initially start to open up their guard yeah. uh, to each other. Yeah. yeah, and after the two ambushers are incapacitated and killed, that's when Paul makes a decision, okay, here, you get your own protective gas mask. This is how much trust I'm extending to you. I don't want you to die right now or catch anything. So yeah. here, that's like the first step on building this relationship. And in due time, they return to the, the house of Paul's family with Kim, with the little boy, Andrew, who's just this cute five or six-year-old kid who means no harm in the world. Yeah. 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 We should probably establish during this time that this happens over the course of a few days. I think it's applied at least a couple of weeks, though there's a bit of a montage in the middle. And at night, Travis, uh, Paul and Sarah's son, is plagued by these nightmares of a plague, specifically of 
alternately uninfected Bud or Will, like cornering him in the house at night. Yeah, and it's I, I think there's an, a sort of uh, almost an implication that the, and I'm getting ahead of myself, mm-hmm. that those nightmares have something to do with the infection and the disease. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're both so focused on it, but they are, we only see them from that one character. And I think, so when they get back together, um, you have that montage that's actually sort of incredibly lovely and filled with hope, mm-hmm. where they start to sort of figure out the rhythm of how those two groups are going to live together. Yes. Um, yes. Um, and when it all goes sour, Ooh. Um, Ooh. I think there's, it's really hard to tell the mechanics of, the, of, of exactly what has happened, of who, if anybody, is sick. Um, and I might be jumping ahead of myself here because there's a sort of pivotal scene right after they establish the way those two families are going to work together. Yeah, there's one thing I do want to focus on first. There's an incredibly sweet scene in the middle of this movie in which uh, Travis, after a nightmare, is out on one of his nightly strolls throughout the house and he comes across will's wife kim in the kitchen yeah and like the two of them just they talk about dessert the two of them were like daydreaming not really daydreaming it's the middle of the night but daydreaming of a sort about the food and delicacies they would eat if they were not in this restricted post-apocalyptic setting it's just a very sweet very human scene that just is thrown into even sharper relief when everything goes downhill in the last 10 or 15 minutes of this movie. Yeah, and they're also very close uh, in age. Um, Mm -hmm. I get the sense that she's slightly younger than her husband. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just this immediate moment of when you have these reduced populations, the the similarities between those people become so much more uh, pronounced. Um, And they have this immediate rapport that, you know, like the the montage of the, the family starting to work together... It's just filled with this really uh, awful, in retrospect, sense of sort of hopefulness. Yes. And like that all starts to go downhill when out chopping wood in the forest one day, Travis's dog, Stanley, catches sight or scent of something and he runs off. And Travis breaks from the rest of the group. He goes chasing after Stanley deeper and deeper into the woods. And we don't see what happens to Stanley, at least not at that time. But he goes fleeing into the woods and there's a sound and his bark suddenly stop. And he's confronted by both uh, Paul and Will. About, hey, don't run off like that. We don't know what's out there. And like that is the moment where things start to tip because it leads into, well, you were going to say something, sorry. Yeah, no, I just, I, that that moment, um, I'm recalling how I felt about that in the in the theater in that moment. And the mechanics of the disease never being established means that the threat, and you also never see it on screen, yeah. is so potentially anything. Like you hear that 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 bark cut off very quickly, and you don't know if that is, uh, you know, a raider or you know a, someone who's going to steal from them in the woods, silencing mm-hmm. the dog, or is there a component of, uh, you know, zombie-like control of the disease that causes the infected people to behave differently. The, the dog vanishing with the quick absence of sound is one of those things that feels like the key to a lock you're never given, um, oh, that's a really which is good, super unsettling. That's a really good way of putting that. In a much funnier way, it's like the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything in Hitchhiker's Guide yeah. to the Galaxy. It's 42. What does that mean? I don't know. It begs the question in reverse. Um, and there's a couple of moments like that where I feel like there is so much data being put forward and none of us have the tools to pick it apart. Mm-hmm. And later that night, where everyone's cooling down after that weird moment in the woods, uh, Paul and Will, they retire to the study and they share some whiskey together. And they're just talking about what they did early on in their lives. You find out that Paul was a history teacher. Uh, and Will worked odd jobs in construction, blue collar work, all that. And while talking... Will let slip that he was an only child, which contradicts what he said earlier that he and his wife and son had been staying at his brother's old place. Yeah, and it's such a, a tiny, tiny little inconsistency that, you know, I don't think most people watching the movie, I, I certainly didn't catch it, mm-hmm. um, but you see Paul catch it instantaneously. And it gives you this sense that despite putting on the, the appearance of trust, that Paul has continually just been working in overdrive, still sort of calculating everything. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's a pretty amazing character moment for Paul. Mm-hmm. And like Will corrects is, oh, I meant to say earlier, I meant to say brother-in-law. Now, maybe there was reasons for like that little white lie there. Maybe the two of them have like such a close relationship that he would say brother instead of brother-in-law. I don't have any in-laws, but I know some people who are that close to their in-laws that they would say brother. Completely understandable and believable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or maybe Will was knowingly lying in that moment. We thought maybe in-law is too much of an abstraction that might get me killed. So I will just say brother instead. You don't see into Will's mind. You don't see his thought pattern. So you're just left with that doubt and skepticism on Paul's end. Yeah. And that, I mean, that moment sort of chills the entire scene and you see both of them, you know, they're approaching a moment of, of legitimate friendliness Mm -hmm. and trust. And you can just see everything withdraw and, everything gets frosty and quieter and his reaction uh in the moment is uh subtle enough that you don't know if it's he understands how it looks but it's not what he meant or if he did lie and it's again one of those just sort of absence of concrete details but you understand the way that the characters have been propelled in different ways because of it and that's not the straw that breaks the camel's back but that leads into very pivotal sequence that happens that very night in which Travis, once again, out for a nightly stroll after a nightmare, uh, he hears a noise coming from the mudroom and there's a very sudden noise and the door, it's happened so fast. I'm not sure if the door shuts. I'm not sure if the door like just smacks against the door frame or whatever, but he's scared. He runs back up to where his parents are and alerts him like, oh, there might be something in the house. So they gear up and Paul and Will go into the mudroom and they find Stanley, the dog, who's been horribly gutted and is at the point of death. Now, it, uh, this is something that sort of, if I had been watching this on a, on a Blu-ray, I would have been backing it up and gathering as much data as I could. But in the theater, it happens so fast. I'm not truly certain, is is the dog just sick with the virus? Mm-hmm. And we, we've seen before that the virus involves vomiting yeah. dark fluid. Or is he actually physically wounded? Can you see that he's got a belly wound at that point? I watched it twice on my own Blu-ray, and it does look like there is a very visible wound on his stomach. I will okay, say that's what I thought too. I skipped over a very key detail, which was while during his nightly stroll, Travis comes across little sleeping Andrew in Bud's yes. old room, and he's like, "Oh, geez, this poor kid. I need to get you back to your parents' room. You can sleep there." And then that leads into the scene with Stanley the dog. And so after Paul euthanizes Stanley and, you know, takes the body out, burns it, they have a big roundtable discussion in the kitchen in which they're just wondering about like, wait, how did the dog come in? Travis says, oh, like the door was unlocked, even though Paul throughout the movie has made a very concerted effort to lock both the outer door and the red inner one. Yeah. It and even to- points out that he only he has the keys. Yeah. He wears it on a string around his neck. And so that leads to this debate at the table, like, wait, so who opened this door? Was it little Andrew? And Will's like, no, Andrew's not nearly as tall enough to reach that lock. Was it Travis who did it? No, I wouldn't do that. I've been here this whole time. I know the danger of like opening that door, leaving unlocked. And in that moment, the gradually warming relationships between the two families just go icy. You feel it. Yeah. It's, so- it's the point of no return, even if it they still handle it with some sort of sense of civilized grace. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no coming back from that moment where they stop trusting one another. Will and Kim, given those circumstances, handle it incredibly well. And I can't remember if it's Paul or Will who makes the decision. They said, we should just keep apart for a day in our own separate rooms just in case. And I think it's Paul. Um, yeah. Because I remember that sort of fitting into his his sense of having control over the situation at all times. Yeah, he's like the man of the house, kind of. Yeah, but it, it, it feels like a logical decision, but it, it also has this sort of this sense of menace and finality to it. Mm-hmm. And so they retire to their separate rooms. And from that point on, we mostly see stuff in Paul, Sarah, and Travis's room because Travis is, for all intents and purposes, the prospective character in this movie. And he brings up the fact like, wait, so if Andrew left the dog, let the dog in or somehow bumped into Stanley got infected, that means I could be infected too because I physically handled Andrew bringing him back to his room. Like maybe we shouldn't be so fast to like isolate these people because the monster could be inside the house all along. Like I could be 
carrying this virus for all we know. Yeah. Uh, now, now going back real quick, when he finds Andrew on the floor yeah. um, sleeping, Andrew says that he's just had a nightmare too, right? Yes. Oh, that's I a- think I think that's why I started to establish um, the commonness of nightmares as being part of the infection. Yes. Because at that point, you get the strong feeling that one or both of them is infected. Mm-hmm. And the middle of that night following the decision to, you know, therapeutically separate for a day, Travis does a thing where he sneaks out of the room at night and he goes to the attic where if he crouches at just the right corner of the room, he can hear people talking in one of the other rooms. In that case, he's able to hear a conversation between Will and Kim and they're discussing leaving. And I'm not sure if I got this in the director's commentary or if like that's a dialogue from the movie itself. One of them is saying, well, maybe Travis is infected. Maybe we should leave. And Travis communicates that to his parents not out of a sense, I don't get the sense that he's like ratting on them or anything. Like, I think he's just generally concerned they will leave. And he very naively tells Paul and Sarah, uh, it sounds like they're going to book it out of there with their, their kid. And that sets off Paul and Sarah's alarm bells in the biggest and yeah. worst way. And and that is such a, that is such a, in fact, when I was watching it, um, that was one of the biggest problems I had with this movie oh. is um, I understand the sort of savagery that Paul has sort of taken on of mm-hmm. what he feels needs to be done. But it's not Paul that that says we can't allow them to leave. It's Sarah who says it first. And that felt, in the moment, felt out of character for me mm-hmm. that she was so quickly willing to go to, well, we we have to we have to take care of them. But I I've sort of the more I dwell on it, I wonder if it's not that it's out of character, but it's that it's it's not what I want anyone to think like the fact that she thinks that I've already understood that Paul has gone to a dark mm-hmm. place, but to hear it come from her is almost wounding in a way, nearly all of the characters have, if I can use this terminology, like sinned at some point, you know, will with breaking in Paul with his paranoia. Travis is the one who straight up says like, Oh, Hey, they're, they're planning to leave. Like this whole, everything that happens in the last 10 or 15 minutes probably could have been prevented if he just not said anything. And hey, who knows what little Andrew was doing up in the middle of the night. Maybe he's the cause of it all. Can't trust a five-year-old. But I think in that moment, it's nobody being nefarious. It's nobody having ill will. It's just regular people being scared. And I can just kind of imagine this mama bear thought in the back of Sarah's mind going like, they could take something of ours. Like they could have like spread it to us and then just left. It could seem spur of the moment, but also you can just imagine somebody reacting in fear like that. One of the ways, like I'm very forgiving of certain horror movies, like namely characters making bad decisions is like, I am, I habitually throughout my life and on day to day course, like make bad decisions. And so we all all make more bad decisions than good, to be honest. These are commonplace to horror where people are under pressure and they're scared and they don't think things through. You know, all I ask of the characters making bad decisions, like, okay, have you established them as people enough before you have them make that flawed choice? Yeah, exactly. I think that a lot of people complain about like, well, why would you go up the stairs or why would Mm -hmm. you do this in horror movies? And I think that totally misunderstands the fact that we all uh, convince ourselves that things are okay. We all talk ourselves out of what we on a gut level know is the right thing to do. Um, And we all do those very stupid things. It's not people doing dumb things uh, that bother me. It's people doing dumb things that are out of the established character that bother me. You know, all characters are artifices. All characters are dreamt up in the mind of the writer whoever, or like the performance of the actor. All I ask is craft enough of an illusion so that in that moment, I think of it as the character making the bad choice and not the script writer saying, oh, I need to advance the plot somehow. Yeah, exactly. That is yeah. that is the, the internal consistency that I need. Is it a character-based decision or a uh, plot controversy? And I don't feel at any point any of the decisions the characters make in this, even if we can, from an outside perspective, say that was stupid, mm-hmm. none of them feel like a plot-based decision. They all are very much in character. Yeah. And I also think that fundamentally, and even when we get to the end, the, even the worst decisions that people make are understandable and understandable not as cruel or evil, but as 
in the moment, the worst thing that anyone is selfish. Yeah. So let's get to a bit of that selfish now. All of it. Yeah. I think so, I think we're basically there. Yeah. So that next morning, Paul and Sarah gear up with weapons and gas masks, and under the pretense of being friendly, they go to Will and Kim's store and like, hey, can we just talk for a second? You know, like just come out, speak as neighbors. You know, and then Will from inside, you hear him acting very defensively. Sarah kind of stands out of sight so that no one sees her there with the rifle. And then when Will finally opens the door, he has a previously secreted revolver on hand. He's got it pointed at Paul's head and he brings Paul into the room, has him take off his gas mask. And Will very clearly states like, okay, my family is leaving. We just want the bare minimum of surprise. We don't want any of our trouble. Please let us leave. And you see Kim like in the corner, she's panicking, she's crying, like trying to quiet a crying Andrew who, good point, we don't actually see for the rest of the movie. We don't see his face. Nope. It's completely hidden. Yeah, we can't establish, like, is this little guy already infected? So there is that other bit of horrible ambiguity. And so Paul says, okay, let's go down to the kitchen. We'll get you some supplies. But as Will is leading Paul down the staircase, that's when Sarah pops out of the darkness, has the rifle trained on him, and there's a bit of a Mexican standoff until Paul is able to get the upper hand, grabs uh, Will's revolver off him, pistol whips him, and the two of them bring out the screaming, horrified family out into the woods where Travis follows as well. And uh, I yeah, it's it's one of it's one of those things where I think the moment you lead that entire family out side at gunpoint we all know exactly what's going to happen but it's still so horrible and anxious to watch i said earlier on like raw human horror and that is what the last few minutes of this movie is travis is begging with his parents please don't hurt them and you can see him like mentally calculating oh wait no was me saying this the thing that led to this very moment like am i the cause of this current predicament and then will gets the drop on paul they wrestle. He starts beating the crap out of Paul. Uh, Sarah puts a bullet through Will, killing him. Kim goes running off with Andrew. Paul grabs the rifle. He takes aim, fires a shot off at Kim. And you hear Kim scream, but it's not a scream of physical pain. It's because Andrew took the bullet and it was shot and killed. And the sound Riley Keough yeah, you lets get it out. Entirely through audio. The sound Riley Keough lets out as Kim is actually raising goosebumps on me. Yeah. She begs Paul to kill her. Yeah. See, I didn't actually catch that when I was listening to it. I was so sort of stunned in the moment that I couldn't pick out what she was saying, which makes Paul's decision to shoot her. Um, I it's one of those things like I say that even when people do the worst things in this movie, you understand where they're coming from. Yeah. It, it feels like an act of mercy that he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and you see that on his face, too. It's almost like follow through. It's like, well, I've started this. I've got yeah. to end it. So while I was horrified by the sequence overall, maybe, maybe, maybe the mood was somewhat diffused by my other roommate, one room over, strumming his guitar and singing along to the Bare Naked Ladies, Brian Wilson. Uh <laughs> So I did have to pause it mid-climax to wait until he stopped. No offense to the man at all. I think it was just poor timing, but like just the worst thought I had, like, no, I cannot let this melancholy song ruin the horror of this scene. A little bit of tonal inconsistency. Paul fires that last bullet. You don't see Kim drop dead, but that's the case. And then they look at Travis and they see he's got a little bit of black blood pooling out of his nose. So he's infected. Yeah. And then I think it's pretty admirable how quickly they get through those last sequences. Mm -hmm. It's almost in shorthand. You you quickly, very quickly see them taking care of Travis in the same way that they took care of uh, Grandpa at the beginning. Yeah. You don't see them like put a pill over his head and shoot him, but you do hear Sarah restating some of her first lines in the movie, which is like, you can let go which is the moment you realize, oh, Travis is, this poor dude is just gone. And he has one last dream of entering the red door at night and going into the mudroom. And then it's just last shot of Paul and Sarah at the kitchen table, no Travis. And if you look closely enough, you can see blisters on uh, Sarah's arm as well. No kidding. I didn't catch that at all. 
I caught that my first time, and like the second time, I just had to be sure. And like, yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty well implied that it is a total party kill in the sense that no one is coming out of that moment. Um, but I didn't catch that she's visibly ill. I mean, I think that's one of the things that obscuring the mechanics of who gets sick when um, and how it's transmitted um, sort of makes it as as maximally uh, paranoid and anxious as possible. That silence sequence at the end, this is uh, ridiculous, but it reminded me a lot of, um, I think, the ending of uh, Big Night with Stanley Tucci, where the characters oh. simply cook breakfast without speaking. And it's just this this short shot of them cooking and working together um, without any dialogue. And it sells, has so much character development and character sort of oh. um, completion in it. This has that same sort of thing of just the two of them in total silence, mm-hmm. uh, understanding what they've done together, what's happened. Um, and, it, you know, I felt that it was pretty obvious that they knew they would probably be infected, but I guess the makeup department says that it's a hundred percent accurate. But yeah, that's just the note this movie ends on. I'm a cheerful person. I'm not quite sure why I'm drawn <laughs> to movies like this and the witch and the black coat's daughter, which are just utterly nihilistic. But I do think like as upbeat as I try to keep my disposition, I do have to stare in that abyss from time to time to kind of not harden myself, but to, you know, it's just one of the therapeutic. It's catharsis. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's you're sort of expunging something that's, that constantly builds up mm-hmm. uh, in these safe and formalized ways. But yeah, I think that's probably a little bit of the reason why everybody who likes horror films likes horror films. Now, apart from our own opinions about this movie, for the other reasons why people would feel ill will toward it, namely like the marketing being misleading, I could totally see someone who's a bit more logically minded when it comes to movie scripting taking issue with the fact that they never clearly established how an infection got into the place. Like, yeah. Or even how the doors were unlocked and open in the middle of the night. I think there is an obvious answer, albeit one that's never, like, the one character who could say, oh. I want to hear yours because uh, I, this is something that sort of kept me up at night afterwards, was trying to figure out the sort of interlocking pieces of how how the room opens. So what is what is your interpretation of it? Simply put, I think that Paul forgot to lock it one night. Like, he's the only one with that key. He has it on a string around his neck. The night <laughs> that happens, we do not see him locking up as we have on previous days. Like, we just see him going for a drink with Will. I think it's just the one time in a million it slipped his mind and he didn't do it. You could say that's out of character for him. But again, like, when I'm at work, I always have to remember to change the outgoing email address I'm sending it on because uh, I could get in trouble for reasons I'm not going to get into. And like, I'm very good at remembering that, but one time out of a million, I forget. And I think that it could have been just a case like that, just simple, dumb human error that led to the worst stuff in this movie. That is the Occam's razor of terror. Uh, it's just, it's the most obvious answer, I guess. Yeah. I, I sort of went through some times where I thought, you know, somebody did something physically to the dog. Somebody harmed the dog. So I started to develop these sort of complex plots about, you know, the disease talks to itself mm-hmm. and the people who are infected are doing these things without really realizing it, these subconscious oh. actions. Um, so I, I had this whole idea of like, is there someone else who's sick outside? And Travis has been ill since grandpa was sick and they're sort of talking on the same wavelength. And he let this person in who hurt the dog and basically made the dog into a, a vector of transmission. Um, and I would sort of build up these, and, and all this stuff sort of falls down when you add other details in the movie mm-hmm. on it. But the fact that it's so open-ended is is really horrific to me. Actually, uh, the Occam's Razor thing you were touching on earlier, there is actually a specific conceptual name for this idea called Hanlon's Razor, in which it stated, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That um, is uh, actually sort of formative for me, tr- getting along better with other people. Yes. Sort of taking that yes. to heart, specifically while driving in traffic when I used to commute <laughs> two hours at a time. So, yeah, that's it comes at night in a nutshell. It weaponizes ambiguity in a way you don't typically see in that kind of uh, zombie post-apocalyptic horror movie. It's baked into the very form of that movie through its dream sequences, which are very much like real dreams. They just kind of start just like in a regular dream. You find yourself in it. You don't know how you got there. And that's why you don't realize it's a dream until you wake up. Yeah, it's um, it's a hell of a challenging movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when I recommend horror films to people, um, 
I wouldn't recommend this to everybody that no. I know that likes horror films, but I think people who are ready for this, that sounds uh, awful, but <laughs> people who I think um, would enjoy, and that also sounds terrible. <laughs> I, I think if you think you would like something that is uh, bleak and sad and challenging, you're absolutely going to like this movie. Yeah. Still yourself a bit. Have a drink beforehand, then sit down <laughs> and watch Trainwood yeah. Schultz's It Comes at Night. Or there is an alternate way you can watch this movie on a couple of times throughout this. I've mentioned the commentary. So I'm one of those nerds who still buys Blu-rays. I'm an even worse nerd who watches movies with the director's commentary when it is available. In this case, it's just Trey Edward Schultz and Kelvin Harrison Jr. who played Travis. And for as dark and hopeless as this movie ends up being, the commentary is the exact opposite. It's a very warm-hearted discussion between these two guys. Very funny at times. And you learn like how the two of them became very good friends while they were filming this and how the relationships between everybody on set was very casual and friendly. My previous gold standard for horror commentaries, uh, it was John Carpenter and Kurt Russell on my Blu-ray of The Thing. It's like the new gold standard like compared to that. I, Wow, that is, that's how far I go into my appreciation. God, I, if I had more time, if I had 32 hours in a day, I would watch a lot more DVD commentaries for sure. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of sort of commonality between this and the thing. So that's lovely that there's some commonality between the commentaries as well. So I have to know in the commentary, does, does, do they say exactly what the director intended or what the writer intended? Same person, I guess. Yeah. Uh, when, when the dog is let in or do they let that remain a mystery? They let that remain a mystery. That's for the best. Something that is touched on the commentary that is never verbally discussed in the movie is how uh, much like their actors, uh, Travis and Sarah are black while Paul is white. And like, I read that one way. I thought that, oh, so white man, Paul married black woman, Sarah. They had this mixed race son. And maybe one of the reasons why Paul is kind of so protective and paranoid is that he has had to deal with racism towards his wife and son and father-in-law in this previous pre-apocalypse life. What uh, Schultz, Trevor Schultz says in the commentary is that like, maybe it's possible that Paul is Travis's stepfather, and that that would explain some of the distance between the two, because the two don't have an incredibly close relationship in the movie. No, I actually, I sort of innately assumed he was a stepfather, yeah. um, and I couldn't tell you why. <laughs> um, but I, I think, again, that that ambiguity of the relationships between them um, and just through casting yeah. um, is is something that suits the tone and the aims and means of this movie really well. Anyways, you and I are two of the pastiest, whitest white guys. We probably shouldn't say anything more on that subject. Yeah, with my uh, shirt off, you can see my heart like a <laughs> newborn fish. Every episode, we cover a short uh, film or viral video involving horror. And this is one that you recommended to me. It's called Curve. It's on Vimeo. I'll include the link in the show notes. It came out last year, written and directed by Tim Egan. So tell me a bit about Curve, Cam. Yeah, I feel, I feel like I can sort of explain the plot of Curve in about 10 seconds, which is that uh, a young woman wakes up and she is sitting on a concrete embankment that slopes sharply up above her head and sharply down below her. It's like a little bit of an S-curve. Mm -hmm. And she's just lying on it and she there's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. You don't know how she got there. She doesn't know how she got there. Um, and you basically have eight or nine excruciating minutes of her trying to understand how she can get herself off of this improbable, uh, improbable concrete structure. And all the while, there's this massive gap beneath her that mm -hmm. is making these horrid, sort of thrumming, almost alive noises um, that provides this extra threat. Dude, these were the longest 10 minutes of my life. I say that in a good way. I had, to, yeah. I had to keep looking at the progress bar because my anxiety watching this was so high. I need to know how many minutes were left in it. It makes you feel every second of this poor woman waking up partially bloodied on the side of this embankment. She doesn't say anything. There's no dialogue at all in this entire thing. Like you can see her visibly contemplating, wait, how did I get here? Oh, wait, how do I get off here first? And yeah. So it, There's a couple of physical elements to the staging that I think make it so interesting. One is that when she wakes up, her leg is folded underneath her oh, in this yeah. improbable way that makes it impossible for her to really get purchase. Mm -hmm. And the other is that her hands are bleeding, which is causing her to slip. 
Yes. Um, yes. And so it's, it's a very visceral, physical performance um, with a really great sense of, we're talking about space and, and um, it's a very small space, but you understand that space intimately by the time it's over. And the actress, Laura Jane Turner, she does this little thing where as she's very gradually wearing her way up the embankment, you feel the physicality of it, of like her realizing every second is precious Every movement I make has to be well thought out, and yet I also have to be able to act in a split second. And almost as like a laughable fuck you. Should I say it? Uh, no, please. Yeah, I think you should. I think it's important. <laughs> there's no resolution to this right. movie. It, like, it begins to rain, and there's no hope, and we just yeah, cut the credits. Yeah, and like the credits are of just like a profile shot of that embankment and there's nobody there. So maybe she fell like, who knows in a more humorous way. I was reminded of my excursions playing uh, legend of Zelda breath of the wild in which there was a lot of rock climbing and bouldering in that game. And they have a stamina mechanic for it that I really appreciated, but also you'll just be mid climb and one of the dynamic thunderstorms starts up and you're just trapped on this rock barely outcropping for a few minutes or so as you're waiting for the storm to pass because any movie you make is going to send you careening off the side to your death in a chasm how many meters below. <laughs> yeah. God, I have to play that game. I think one of the things that's uh, super striking to me in it is that, first of all, I have no idea where they found this set. I don't understand what it could possibly serve in real life, but it appears to truly be an actual concrete space. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple of shots where she looks over and there's like hundreds more of them. Like it's this sort of repeating, uh, improbable shape of concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on one of them, it's covered in blood, mm-hmm. uh, in handprints, just like hers. And the last little thing we're going to cover in this episode is a piece of short fiction. In this case, I'm going to have to explain the context for this short story as much as the short story itself. So this is an entry from a fan fiction website of sorts called the SCP Foundation. So SCP, Secure, Control, Protect, I believe. Anyone can contribute to this kind of wiki page. Imagine it as the database for an Area 51-esque facility with all these weird supernatural and paranormal anomalies are kept. And so each page on this wiki are like entries for like the different objects and entities and creatures they have lodged in this facility. So what's interesting about the SCP Foundation is that even though they have hundreds of entries at this point, plus like actual narratives that people have written involving these entries, there's no designated SCP-001. So there's nothing in the very first slot. What instead they have is they've allowed some of the top contributors on the site to write their own proposals for SCP-001. And there's at least eight of them there when you scroll all the way down the SCP-001 page. And each one acts like they're the one true one. And all the other ones are just false ones that have been there to confuse people who have broken into the SCP servers. So this particular proposal is by a top site contributor named Kate McTierris. It uses the format of this agency-operated wiki in which the entity is a slot in the database that takes anything that has been written into it and makes it objectively true. So the main character in this narrative, a numerologist named Mary Nakayama, uh, she has temporarily put this one item into the SCP-001 slot because it's a weird anomalous vinyl record that anytime it's put on a digital list, it immediately goes to the top of the chart. Like it was- yeah. Like, it's- it's such a lovely banal, uh, you know, almost all the objects in these in these series have multiple strange effects, mm. but to have such a banal, you know, it's a record that always goes into slot number one of any list it's on. Uh, and they believe it was intentionally created like that to game billboard charts. Yeah, but, but they also note that at the time, billboard was like completely analog and using typeset charts. So they weren't able yes. to game the system. But like the record itself is largely harmless. It's that Mary Nakayama discovers that anything like typed into the wiki for this particular slot is made true. And she first, like as a joke writes, like before she realizes the effects of this slot, she types, oh, anyone, everyone in the department's going to give me $5 at lunch today. And the next update to the entry, she's panicking because everyone went and did that. Everyone gave her $5 unquestioningly. 
And you see with each update to this entry, her playing around with it a bit more and then like upgrading her status at the site to giving herself some paid vacation time. And then eventually after some contemplation, she makes herself God. Like she says, like, I am this omnipotent, omniscient being who have transcended time and space. Uh, I am given soul control over this slot. And she also includes like this note, like her reflecting on this suicide attempt she'd had much earlier in this, her life and how in that moment she was visited by an entity who saved her, who kept her safe. And she starts wondering, like, maybe this is my destiny. This is the story of God ensuring her existence in a way that yeah. it's not well overtly scary. It is haunting. And I also feel safe in saying like kind of beautiful of this woman rescuing herself and utterly transcending humanity in the process. And that starts off lightly humorous and harmless and then becomes this God creating herself. Like often, you know, having been raised Catholic and read certain sections of the Bible a lot, I was always entranced by the idea that before the Garden of Eden and everything, God had always existed, which in my head is even more hard to comprehend the idea of eternity than something going on forever, because at least that something had a beginning. But like, Yeah, exactly. But then like this puts in a perspective like, oh, this is a kind of ontological paradox. Yeah, retroactive continuity change. Yeah, like God created herself through this glitch in the universe. And maybe God was the one who put that glitch there in the first place. It's never established. But yeah, it's just a short read, less than 10 minutes. And because yeah. I've already spoiled the dang thing, but it is Kate No, it's, but it's definitely worth reading, even if you understand where it's going. I think the, the two things that struck me about it is how complex and heady of a story it tells mm. in such a short amount of text. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is that I love this, these series because there's something to me so frightening about treating horror fiction as a dry forensic uh, list of information. I mean, I think <laughs> it has to do with why we like found footage a lot. Like it's yeah. this sort of this feeling of veracity. And I think having it be this tiny entry for this, yeah. you know, this record that does very little, that is what you're seeing is the change logs of it over time. Um, I think it's like this next level of cleverness of using the medium of a Wikipedia of objects to tell a story. Um, and it's just, you're right, it, it is creepy, but it's also sort of lovely and haunting. Yeah, because unlike a lot of the other entries in SCP, and especially the other proposals for SCP-001, this is the only one you could come away feeling kind of good about, in a way. Like, there's another one about the broken god, which I love, but it is also just this horrifying, apocalyptic monster piece. So do check that out if you have 10 minutes. Like, even if the ending is spoiled, it's still really fun. So yeah, that covers our big three works for this week, though I actually would like to issue a correction. Uh, in the previous episode, I had said that AM1200, the short by David Pryor, had to have been shot in Canada rather than California where it's set because I saw a TD Bank. I've exchanged a couple of emails with David Pryor and he listened to the episode. Hey, hey, David. Hi there. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, so this was shot entirely in Southern California in Glendale and Lancaster. And he's like, I wish I'd be able to shoot in Canada. Uh, Vancouver would have given me more of the landscape I was looking for, but that will have to wait until next time. So yeah, I guess TD Bank has locations in Canada. More you know. But thank you for listening, David. Both Cam and I really liked AM1200, and again, we'll recommend that to people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I feel like I should apologize for anything dumb I said about it. It's still something I hold in such high regard. I think uh, you made it okay. Okay, phew. Yeah, I guess that's about it for today. I'm curious if you've got any like horror films you're looking to watch in the next little while that you've had like on your queue or something. Oh, I actually just started Stranger Things uh, Season 2 last ah. night. I watched the first episode and it is the absolute perfect uh, methadone to my post-Halloween doldrums. <laughs> you know, there's pumpkins, there's Halloween. It's just, it was a very lovely feeling to turn it on last night. And I look forward to hearing your take on it. And there's more of our two favorite characters, Chief Hopper and Steve Harrington. They get some great scenes in that second season. Oh, yeah. yeah. My, my beloved bro. Oh, just, I was talking about this on Twitter earlier this week. I have a... Th- great fondness for 
characters who start out as meat-headed asshole bros and then are humbled and or learn a lesson and then they become kind-hearted idiots or jackasses who still save the day in a way and that is steve harrington from stranger things in a nutshell especially in season two it's the greatest redemption arc i love it so thank you once again cameron for coming on this is really fun talking about it comes at night with you Oh, my pleasure yeah Yeah. you can rent uh it comes at night on youtube right now i don't think it's on canadian netflix it's not on canadian netflix i'm not sure if it's on american netflix at the moment not yet not yet no thank you everybody for listening in this episode uh this has been at savage dream and if it gets too scary don't be afraid to tap out have a nice evening